Time has changed little for either of us, Doctor. You continue to roam the universe while we persist in our simple existence on this planet. Yes. The antenna's new monitor. Occasionally, our researchers require what is sometimes called technology. But for the most part, our computations are enough. Direction point! Direction point! A Doctor Who Podcast Network. Well, hi, everybody. Welcome back to Doctor Who Literature, the podcast taking you through the world of the Doctor Who novelizations put out by Target Books from 1973 onward in publication order. We're a member of the Direction Point Doctor Who podcast network. My name is Jason, and I'm your host on this journey, this very long journey. We are nearing the end of 1982 in the Target world, and it's the novelization of Tom Baker's final television story, Legopolis. Spoiler alert, this is my favorite novelization of all time. This is one of my favorite TV stories of all time. I absolutely love this book. We opened with a audio from the TV story. There are going to be several more audio clips from the TV story, and I didn't get to talk about it much during my guest interview, and I didn't talk about it much during my audio essay celebrating the book at the end of this program, but Patty Kingsland's score is absolutely incredible. A good friend of mine made an audio recording of the score off-air for me when I was in law school, the one year that I did not have a television set, but I listened to the audio of Legopolis and Castor Valva, which he also recorded for me over and over again. Cannot give enough superlatives to Patty Kingsland's work, along with everything else about the story. This is not going to be an objective sorting out of the pros and cons of the book. This is not going to be an objective look at whether or not the TV story is perfection. This is just going to be, at least on my end, a pretty unabashed love fest, so you have been warned. I was on last week's release of the Doctor Who Target Book Club podcast talking about Black Orchid, the Terrence Dudley novelization. That's coming quite a bit down the line. I think that was the final Peter Davison novelization. We've only covered one on this show, but if you want to hear me talk about that out of sequence, had a great time with Tony and Dalton over on the Doctor Who Target Book Club podcast. You should subscribe to that already, and you've probably already got the download, but in the event that you have not yet subscribed, I will have a link in the show notes. Please subscribe and follow that podcast too. We have two bits of listener mail this week. Dear Jason, I've been meaning to write to you for some time. I am a big fan of this podcast. I was reminded of a panel that I was a part of in 2016 at the Long Island Who 4 con. It took me a while to find my program for that con. I was on that panel with you. I have been a fan of the Target books since 1983. Cheers, Alan from New Hampshire. That was the fourth Long Island Doctor Who, November 2016. Uh, began the Friday after the presidential election results, which were finalized on the Wednesday morning. That was a very downbeat convention. I do recall 
the panel, Alan, and I actually make reference to it a little bit later on during this program. Thank you for being a listener. Thanks for writing, and I hope you stick with us. I have invited Alan to submit an audio recording for the Five Doctors episode, which is coming up in a few months. And of course, I extend that invitation to all of you, a two to five minute audio recording about the book or the episode or any of your other recollections about the Five Doctors. And here is not an email, but it is a review on Apple Podcasts. Doctor Who literature spoiled by guests. Two stars. Good idea, but I found the guests on the three episodes I listened to, ghastly, woke zombies, throwing around all the cliches like problematic and androgynous, sort of people who politicize opening a box of cornflakes. Fail. Mr. Day, or M.R. Day, from Great Britain. Well, Mr. Day, thank you for listening. I do get credit for the download, so thank you very much for increasing my traffic. In terms of my ghastly, woke zombies, they all say thank you very much. The androgynous was actually used by Denise during the State of Decay episode a few weeks ago, and she meant it in a positive sense. Denise is one of the best guests this show has ever had, and one of my favorite people, and she was very amused by the criticism. More to the point, Mr. Day, you misspelled the word androgynous. So, really, which of us is ghastly? I have not talked about it much here, but I recently had, uh, not a tragedy, but due to a clerical error, uh, all of my Doctor Who collection that I was storing off-site, all of my new adventures, missing adventures, past Doctor and Eighth Doctor adventures were being stored in a relative's garage out of state, and when they were doing a spring clean slash downsizing, about two-thirds of my boxes were inadvertently given away to got junk and are untraceable. It was a few months after the event when I found out what happened and the extent of what I'd lost. I do have about 13 or 14 stray BBC books that survived, but I've lost all the version books. I've lost most of the BBC books. I've also lost my heavily annotated two copies of the Doctor Who program guide, the Lefficier book, and also lost a notebook full of Doctor Who fan fiction that I wrote when I was 12 years old. This is really, I don't want to use the word devastating, because in the end of the day, it's only a loss of books, most of which are available as PDFs pretty widely, and papers that I haven't you know, had possession of or read in quite a long time. But in another sense, this was my Doctor Who collection, especially the New Adventures, which were, you know, a tremendous part of my Doctor Who fandom in the 1990s. I am not intending to replace all the books that were lost, but I do want to rebuild my entire New Adventures collection. I put a post up about that on Twitter a few days ago, and I was just really, really taken aback by the kindness and generosity of a lot of you, a lot of messages of sympathy, a lot of offers to help. I want to give particular thanks to uh, Ross and Phil and Michael Storm and Ivy and everybody else who's offered to help me with collecting the books or shipping. Really appreciate all of you guys. I do have about a quarter of the new adventures now um, in my possession. 
Some of the new adventures are going to be harder to trace. Some of them are pretty rare or rather expensive. I will eventually get a complete set back, but my thanks to everybody who's listened to me and has offered to help. So, without further ado, let us get to this week's episode. I did post the Legopolis uh, book cover on Twitter earlier in the week with a call for memories, and a lot of you submitted a lot of really good memories many of which I'm going to incorporate during my essay without direct attribution. But thanks to everybody who contributed to that thread. It is available on my Twitter feed posted in mid-April of 2023. For those of you who are listening to this episode uh, fairly close in time to uh, the release, you'll be able to scroll down. Or you can just go to my Twitter profile, Doctor Who Novels, at novels on Twitter, if Twitter still exists by the time you find this episode and type in Legopolis when you search through my tweets, and you should be able to find the post. You can also email me at Literature. that's drwholiterature at gmail.com, or you can leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Uh, Mr. Day chose to leave a two-star review because of the ghastly woke zombies, but if you're a longtime follower of mine, a uh, charitable review certainly would not be unappreciated. Meanwhile, I was going to have John Blum and Kate Orman back as my guests this week. You will recall that both John and Kate were my guests for the Talons of Wang Chiang episode back in episode 37. I also had John as a solo guest way back in the beginning for episode 10, The Abominable Snowman. He was only my sixth ever guest. The plan was to have both John and Kate this week. Unfortunately, Kate was not well this week and was not up to recording, so it is John Solo, but Kate is very much missed and, of course, is always welcome back on this show whenever she wants. After that, you will have my audio essay about the book with plenty of liberal use of Legopolis quotes and Patty Kingsland musical cues. Again, I absolutely love the story to pieces, and we're going to spend the better part of the next two hours exploring that. Thank you very much for downloading. Thank you very much for listening. And thank you for sticking with my weekly marathon-length episodes. I promise there will be some shorter ones coming up in the near future. But in the meantime, let's get to it. The vervoids are probably the best dirty joke in Doctor Who. They're hermaphroditic plants. A lot of plants are. So there you go. That's it's based on science. No, they'll ship anything. There are probably eleven and handle shippers out there. You just have to drill a hole where his mouth is, and you're all set. You know yeah. he needs the room. I've seen it in pictures. I'm not saying you're not a fan. I'm saying you don't know what the fuck you're talking about. Doctor Who gives a a drunken Doctor Who podcast for the end times. You are listening to Doctor Who Literature. Keep turning the pages! Alright, John Blum, welcome back to Doctor Who Literature. How are you, my friend? Hi, I'm doing really rather well. Kate sends her apologies. She's ill today and just can't deal with 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 that sort of stuff, so she's just sent me to to go on my own here. It's wonderful to be back, though. The original plan was to have you and Kate on, same as during our Talons of Wang Chiang episode, and I even went to the trouble of pulling two different episodes of 20 questions, and I was going to have you do alternating questions trying to guess different stories, but we will happily (laughs) save that for next time. 
Oh, yes, there will be a next time. She loved doing the last one. That was one of my fastest downloading episodes. And I will say I read a review out earlier in the week. Um, I received my first negative review on Apple Podcasts. And in terms of this episode, I've already read the review out to our listening audience. But uh, the reviewer described my guests as ghastly, woke zombies. So I imagine that you and Kate would say, you're welcome. I'd be I'd be insulted if we weren't included in that, to be honest there. <laughs> it's like someone I remember this reading someone's wonderful rant about there supposedly being a Doctor Who feminist front or something like that. That was that was um, uh, exposing sexual predators in the industry as a devious means to an end of making Doctor Who more intersectional. <laughs> and I felt appalled that there could be such a conspiracy like that. And Kate and I weren't invited. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the reviewer took issue with the word problematic, which I know came up in our discussion of Talons of Wang Chiang. So you guys are in very good company. Ah, uh, yes. The colorful monsters is problematic. <laughs> so, yes. <laughs> I would have read that in my best Terrence Dix voice earlier in the episode, but that would have seemed unfortunate. I, uh, later in the episode, when I'm doing my review of Legopolis, I try to do an Australian accent, and it's not going to be pretty, so I'm not <laughs> going to bother to imitate Terrence and uh, Janet Fielding in the same episode. Oh, my God. Yeah. I, believe me, I sympathize. I tried, to do, I tried to read out a bit that I was fond of in Tom Baker's voice, and I realized that I did that just no. <laughs> my acting skills, as those of you who have been listening to the show for the last 18 months can attest, my acting skills are comparatively feeble, to quote a different regeneration story than this one. So I'm just not going to try it. Fair enough. And I will avoid breaking into Sylvester McCoy impersonations in this one in, in return. That would be particularly I, odd in this particular case. <laughs> the thing is you, when you were screening time rift at visions, 1995, where Sylvester was a guest, Sylvester showed up during the screening and there's a video of you and him with him telling you that he thought it was him and not you doing the voice. Yes, but to be fair, I'm sure that Sylvester was very jet-lagged at the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So speaking of Time Rift, which was uh, your big fan video project in the mid-1990s, you and Kate both have some irons in the fire right now. Can you fill us in on what you guys have been working on and what are your recent or forthcoming releases? Okay, well, in terms of uh, recent releases, I haven't actually got anything out the door for several years now because little things like COVID and working on productions with other people who have who have um uh, basically fallen into production limbo but um my up my next upcoming project has recently doubled in size and this is i believe a world exclusive at this point that i'm telling this is the first person that i've mentioned this to Ooh. though it's going to be public news in the next few days i suspect which is that uh the book that i've been working on for a long time uh what is Basically, the bit, the grand climax of the Lethbridge-Stewart novel series, which has been leading up to the founding of UNIT. I was doing the book in which this all actually happened, which was going to be called Intelligence Task Force. Uh, this is going to be following on from a book by John Peel right before called United Nations. Yes. So uh, that was the plan. It was a two book a two book series that would have that would uh, finally finally bring everything together and and create the founding of UNIT. However. I turned in a manuscript that was about 20,000 words over length. Uh, I'd been told that I could be a bit long on this sort of thing. They were okay with that for the for the big like climactic event. 
but they said, okay, not that long. Let's try cutting it down. And we tried cutting it down at great length um, for quite a few months of fiddling with things, and we're trying to find ways of cutting it down that didn't uh, seriously hurt the book. And then I made a passing suggestion to the editor saying, you know, there was enough stuff in the original outline for at least a book and a half. We could go back and, and like put in all the stuff that I'd taken out early on and turn this into two books. And to my still continuing shock, he basically said, yeah, that'll work. Ah. And so I have since gone back and written uh, nearly another 50,000 words uh, to turn this thing into two separate novels. I've come up with a climax to book one, which I think works as a good cliffhanger. Uh, so now what was going to be two books has become a trilogy. Uh, with uh, John Peel writing the first book, which has now inherited the title Cry Havoc, which I really like. Yes, um, that's, a, that's a great double meaning. Yes. Uh, for those who aren't aware, uh, the uh, the predecessor to the unit, which the Brigadier is currently working for, is the Home Army 5th Operational Corps, which is abbreviated as Havoc. Mm. And uh, that's been a – so Havoc has uh, been well established. He's doing the stuff when there's still very much in the, the Havoc space, really, so it works as well. And now I am doing – Two books called United Nations and Intelligence Task Force. They're still on, on course for late this year, and there will not be a book four. I can promise you that. <laughs> we just need to get them through the editing phase. <laughs> but you're following in the very worthy footsteps of John Peel, who pitched the Daleks' master plan as two novelizations. Oh my God, I hadn't thought about that. And I suppose since he also got to do the chase uh, right before that, he also would have had a three book deal, I suppose. Yes. <laughs> that makes a certain amount of sense. Uh, at this point, I am about 6,000 words from finishing uh, book two. So it'll be done in the next few weeks there. Assuming I can figure out how to squeeze the last bits of plot into 6,000 words. <laughs> yes, I'm still running long. <laughs> But I'm going to be able to get this one down to length because it's pretty close. It's just a matter of which of my favorite darlings I have to kill in the process. <laughs> <laughs> well, don't kill the Brigadier. He's needed somewhere else. I think we'll be able to safely say the Brigadier does survive this particular book there. They're going to, because after all, they're doing a series of unit novels right afterwards, and he'd be rather annoyed if I took that out. However, <laughs> I can't say that anyone else is particularly safe in the course of that book, but we'll see what happens. <laughs> And uh, since the last time that we recorded for Towns of Wang Chiang, and that was probably at least six or seven months ago at this point, I believe mm. Kate's big finished novel has since been released? Yes, uh, Kate has now put out a uh, Doctor Who audiobook uh, for Big Finish called The Dead Star, and that is a fascinating experience to listen to. I was only sort of on the fringes of the writing process, of giving, giving feedback and notes there, but not actually writing any bits for that one. And it has been amazing seeing what she has done with this. Uh, she has managed to do something that, that, to me, it's recognizably a Kate Orman novel. It's got her various obsessions in it to some degree. But it's wrapped up in a wonderfully 60s Troughton kind of feel. Um, and it, I think that she's done a really good job of squaring that particular circle. She managed to make the um, uh, the more, as someone put it, balls to the wall aspects of Kate Orman novels work in the context of sort of 60s weirdness. It's like, I mean, think of the kind of stuff they did in The Mind Robber uh, with episode, in episode one in particular. Yes. But imagine if they had a budget to do some, to do weird visual stuff. I found myself listening to the audiobook and realizing how she had managed to hit the balance between things they could just about have done in 1960s television, but still giving you that widescreen kind of feel. So that if they had been 60s television with a, with a significant budget, you could have you could have got this. I could picture both how they could have do stuff 
you know, do stuff on a almost a BBC budget where they would use things like stop motion or like still photographs or uh, in general weird stuff rather than fancy modern technology. But I could also just completely buy into the story. It wasn't just a pastiche of low budget technology of TV production. It just, it worked on both those levels. So I was once again getting to be a Kate Orman fanboy, which I have unapologetically been since day one. <laughs> As I mentioned earlier in this program before you joined, I recently learned that I had lost my entire collection of new adventures. All, oh, yes. That's all 61, <laughs> plus Walking to Babylon, plus a few other of the Benny books that I'd acquired secondhand. So I lost about 65 or 66 new adventures, including all of Kate's. Uh, so there were two crushing realizations when I, when, when I came to this unfortunate discovery. Number one, my copy of Set Piece had folded inside it notes that I'd written. I read the book in two days in early 1995, and I wrote notes for my eventual review. All those notes are now lost because it was inside oh. the book. Oh, that's just terrible. Actually, the other, was, oh, sorry, go, go ahead. ahead. Yo, you go ahead first. Finish your thing. The other dreadful realization is that Kate Orman's first novel came out 30 years ago this year, Left-Handed Hummingbird in 1993, and it's impossible for that book to be 30 years old because I'm only about 25, so I don't understand how that happened. Welcome to my life. That has been my, my experience there is that I I keep looking up and going, this is not that, I mean, I still have those moments of going, hang on, I'm married to Kate Orman. <laughs> <laughs> because those years loom so large for me, those years of, of when we were just starting out, and I cannot get my head around the idea that it has been been 30 years since since all that started thing i wanted to say to you is that having heard your story about uh the, the collection i mean obviously we can't get you copies of lung barrow but kate and i still do have author copies of at least most of uh, kate's books i will talk to her when i a little bit later on when i finish this see if we've got enough there that we could arrange a care package of replacing at least some of them of our books that would be fabulous i have thanks to ebay and thanks to the kindness of my twitter friends i am probably now about 15 books back into rebuilding the collection many of the books can still be got on ebay for under face value which is pretty impressive considering they're 30 years old but kate's books are not among those are the more valued possessions so i lost all of i don't have any of kate's yet and I also lost the copy of Vampire Science that you had personally autographed to me because of a particular a particular character in Vampire Science who shares my middle name and my then occupation as a law student. So that's also lost forever. Oh man, that's a real shame. Um, I think Vampire Science is one I don't think we have any spare copies of because the BBC was relatively stingy about author copies. So I don't know if we can do that one. So Violacin is also difficult there. I mean, the fact, the yeah. idea that Kate wrote a book with Ben Aronovich now means that it's now being pursued not just by uh, Doctor Who fans, but by Ben Aronovich fans. So it's so so Violacin has become in, incredibly rare, and we don't have any spare copies of that one. But we can we can might be able to get you some of the thirty-year-old ones. Help, I would be eternally it. eternally grateful, and I thank you guys so much. We'll, I'll, I'll dig through our, our supplies and see what we've got there, because, frankly, having your collection just disappear out from under you is a horrific story. So, yeah, all my sympathy. <laughs> Although at the same time, I, I don't want to say that there's a, a positive to this, but 
I was fairly lucky in that, like you, I was buying all the new adventures in the wild. I bought my first two in November 1991, shortly after The Lion came out. I got my copies of Lung Barrow and Sylviolison as they came out in 1997. I was just getting the books off the shelf, so there was never any discovery, there was never any hunting, there was never any quest. Going mm. back now and getting these copies in the mail through eBay, mostly from used bookshops throughout America in um, white plastic bags that are new adventure sized, I get an adrenaline I'll say that again, I'll get an adrenaline I'll point out that we're recording this a few hours before the episode goes live, so this is not a typical, carefully edited curated recording, we're just doing this live to tape pretty much, so I'm not editing out my verbal fluffs or verbal pluffs as I just said for some reason, (laughs) but the adrenaline rush that I get from opening these packages and seeing these old new adventures that I collected live and read live in the 1990s, I'm getting nostalgic even for some of the less beloved books in the series. So I'm probably one of the very few people to say, I can't believe it. I finally got Shadow Mine and Strange oh. England. My day is complete. Oh my God. I was just about to say, oh wow, Shadow Mind. <laughs> Sorry, Mr. Bueller, if you're out there listening to this. It was just... Shadow Mind is a good book for what it is. It's got Ace's birthday party sequence in the beginning. It tells a good two-fisted action story. It's not necessarily too broad and deep for the small screen, and it's not necessarily innovative, but I enjoyed it in 1993, and I haven't read it in about 27, 28 years. So getting into the – I'm going to read it cover to cover when I get my copy. So there's nothing bad there. I'm glad to hear it worked out well for you then. I I have yet to go back and revisit my new adventures for such a long time there. And that could be a, a – I mean, that would be a fun thing to do at some point is to actually go through and wallow in all those again and just really, really soak it all up with that kind of distance. The funny thing is, though, what you're describing about um, uh, just the, the thrill of the hunt in this case and the, the collection of those things – that takes me right back to the state of mind that I was in when I first got uh, Legopolis in, in particular, because I, that was during the days when, as a newly minted young fan, you were just beginning to find these books were just beginning to turn up in the States in the occasional actual bookshop. So I, so I, can, I still have these incredible memories of going to Barbarian Books in, um, uh, in uh, the sort of Silver Spring area you know, in, in, in Maryland. And uh, finding what what had happened to turn up there, or Jeppy's Comic Mart, or or even books, etc., which finally started stocking them in Rockville near where I lived, and that that incredible just sort of oh my god, it's this one, and you would just be thrilling over suddenly having managed to find the novelization of Underworld or something, and just you would just this that that the uh, the the oh my god, what what has turned up at this point now? What what is here now? And the thrill that I that I remember getting there, not about Legopolis, but in fact about Castor Valva. I was jonesing for that book. I wanted so much to find it. It was not turning up anywhere. I was calling Barbarian Books in particular on an almost daily basis trying to see if it had come in yet because I was so much in love with what had happened to Legopolis that I wanted the next I wanted the next episode really. And we couldn't get them on TV at the time in, in the DC area. But this so the novelizations were a lifeline for all these extra chunks of doctor who and that was the finding these finding these volumes was just magic and thanks for thanks for reminding me of all that for this podcast really 
it's funny that you mentioned Rockville because I had a large cluster of relatives in Bethesda at the time. So I know for a fact that I would have gotten some of my early Doctor Who books while visiting relatives in Maryland. So you and I may well have gotten books off the same shelf in the same shop, if not necessarily at the same time. Oh, man, that's another one of those coincidences that keeps blowing my mind. I've been running into loads of those. And that theme of just the the unlikely coincidence and the hang on, we just we crossed paths without even knowing it. That also plays into uh, United Nations and Intelligence Task Force in a way. That's a little teaser for folks that I'm not that's not going to pay off for months. because I don't think I'm going to talk about this to anyone else. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So let's um, then talk a little bit more about Legopolis. And I know I can tell you I've, I've mentioned this many other times. Legopolis was the first novelization that I was given as a loner to read. I would have been in the sixth grade, 11 years old. This is right around the time that I started watching the show on television, but before I worked out the deal with my parents to get the books myself. So I read the first seven chapters of Legopolis on a lunch break, and I can still recall where in the room I was. I can still recall the geography of the classroom and running back and forth to my friend every few pages with some excited discovery. So when oh, I started man. to collect the novelizations, Legopolis was not available in our local bookstore. So it was several months before I actually got the book myself. But this is one of my favorite books, not just Doctor, one of my favorite books ever. And I get the adrenaline rush from the cover. I get the adrenaline rush from the particular shade of blue. And you'll notice that in my childhood handwriting, I put the story code 5V as in Victor on the front uh, inside <laughs> cover. Now, this was one of the very first books where I marked off the novelization. So I put a red line at the bottom of chapters three, six, and nine to demarcate the cliffhangers. Later on, I would just start writing in part one or episode four, but here it's just a red line. So this is one of the very first books that I marked up, so I would always know where the cliffhanger was. So that's that's, really... that's, that's my Legopolis. This is you know a book that is basically encoded into my DNA at this point. So I wanted to get your origin story for Legopolis, both in terms of the television episodes and the novelization, which one you would have seen first and how your discovery of one impacted your enjoyment of the other. Oh, this is this is really funny because my story is in some ways uncannily similar towards you, to, to yours. I mean, in my case, it wasn't actually running over to tell one of my friends the um, uh, all the great bits that turned up there, but it was this was a book that I would loan out to my friends who to, to, who have just been to Doctor Who to show them just how good it could be. I mean, the story um uh, for me discovering Legopolis. I mean, it's all tied up with these particular moments. Again, sixth grade, eleven years old. I mean, they say the golden age of Doctor Who is when you turn twelve. This is like just the I guess the lead up to uh to that for me. Uh, you have this this period in uh in uh, American fandom, really, where people are only just discovering how much Doctor Who there is. Um, the the first uh, package of Doctor Who episodes that had been running was seasons 12 through 15, which had been running over and over again. And for a long time, that was all I knew that Doctor Who was. I thought that uh, I didn't know there was anything after Invasion of Time. So my my earliest like fan imaginings of stories like that didn't quite make it as far as the written fanfic states there were all things that would have taken place after Invasion of Time. The Doctor, the Doctor of course, in my thing would have gone back and finally met Sarah Jane again and continued on and that sort of right. thing there. So there was this like this little bubble of Doctor Who that was this chunk of time. I knew it had been earlier Doctor Who because of the introduction to the Pinnacle novelizations, which I'd read some of. Harlan Ellison's little spiel explaining the show to Americans. That's how I knew there had been earlier Doctors. I didn't know about anything past Invasion of Time for quite a, a long period of time. 
and I loved those those books as um basically retellings of this of of the TV show. Then suddenly one night, I mean, I think Doctor Who had actually stopped running briefly on Channel Twenty Six, where I'd started watching it, and then oh, one one wow. I I turned on Channel Thirty Two, which was the other local PBS station in DC, run out of Howard University, and I saw this. I saw this strange woman kneeling down, talking to K9. I did a double take, and the and the care and we cut to another scene. And it's Tom Baker's doctor, and it's Tom Baker's doctor with a new companion that I didn't know existed. And this is the rebus operation, and this oh, station yes. just bought the new package of episodes there, which which I later found out would be seasons 16 through 18. And I started watching that, and as this this period of time was as this was unfolding from Rebels Operation 4 onwards, I was suddenly discovering the existence of all this other Doctor Who stuff out there. I found my first issue of Doctor Who magazine, uh, issue 79, which I still have, even though it's beginning to disintegrate at this point. Oh, wow. And um, uh, uh, basically found out about these characters called Nyssa and Tegan and the, the, and the, the fifth Doctor that was out there. And Eventually in the episodes, I get up to these ones to Keeper of Trocken, and there's Nyssa, and then the next week there's this Tegan turning up, and I get a sense, my god, we're catching up to, like, the newest Doctor Who, and that's an incredibly exciting feeling of what is happening there. And then Legopolis hits, and it absolutely blows my mind. I'm sure in my first viewing I couldn't follow about half of it there, but I was just staggered by the, the import of this, of this story, and the sense of just there was a magic to it. It was like Doctor Who had become something like nothing else on TV that I had seen. And I, I think this is around the time where I went from from enjoying watching Doctor Who to becoming a full-on fan. It was around that little stretch of time. This is, again, late 83, possibly trailing into early 1984. I am, and I am falling in love with, with this show in a whole new way. And then the novelization hits, and it blows my mind all over again. Mm. I mean, there's this sudden flowering, I think, of the books that came out in around 1982, where suddenly in rapid succession you get the books for Full Circle and Warrior's Gate and Legopolis, all of which are not just doing a retelling of the television story with like little bits of embroidery around the edges. They are doing these things as novels. They are, they are they are departing from the stories. They are full, they are bringing in like stuff from outside myths and legends and allusions from to other things. And the sense of Doctor Who as not just you wouldn't just pick up the Doctor Who book of the month and read on its own. This is this is becoming a continuing saga of um, of an unfolding story. The way that all those things are changing changing the status quo. It's not just a rare occasional event where a companion leaves or suddenly suddenly things can happen unexpectedly. That was what I was really picking up here. That was the sense of surprise around all this. And then just reading the book and the prose in Legopolis, I really do think that that it's this book in particular that spoiled me for Terence Dix's novelizations in terms of the <laughs> in terms of the writing. Because Terence's stuff, when you go back and look at it, he writes stuff that is very spare, but with these occasional actual gemstones of perfect like perfect yes. phrase, perfect description. And then you hit Legopolis, and it's like someone has taken this whole jewelry box full of gemstones there and just dumps it over your head. It is relentless in terms of the sheer number of moments of just magical, evocative prose and things that that could not have been 
brought across the same way on TV. And just and there's witty lines that are that are just part of this the doctor's in, in sort of skewed internal monologue, and just all and like all the stuff that is not quite explained but that somehow makes sense nonetheless. This was as I was beginning to discover the Doctor Who could actually be like a novel, not just a novelization, but something with something which had literary value to it. And I was just beginning to get these concepts into my head at age 11 here. And it was just, it was the first step on the way, I think, to becoming a reader on a whole different kind of level than I had previously been. And possibly that's a step on the way to becoming a writer. So So I want to step back then and build, you've given us some really interesting points to work with. So let's step back and re-examine some of what you've said. You talk about discovering unexpectedly Doctor Who seasons 16, 17, and 18. Now, it's fascinating because each one of those seasons is a hermetically sealed universe. It's three years, three different script editors. You have Anthony Reid doing the Key to Time season, and you have some incredibly funny stories in that season because you have Robert Holmes. You have Douglas Adams. You have two in a row from David Fisher. Now, the last two stories of the season are probably not as well regarded in fandom as some of the others, but... The stretch that you get from Rebos Operation Part 1 through Androids of Tara Part 4 is about as great a stretch as we've gotten in Doctor Who since the Hinchcliffe years, because Season 15 is, you know, in some respects a dip in quality. Season 16 is a gem. Then you go to Season 17. Douglas Adams graduates from writing one story to becoming the script editor. And he's trying desperately to put hard science on the show, but the writers aren't always cooperating. And then the last story never gets made because of the BBC, never gets completed, I should say, because of the BBC strike. So season 17, divided fandom for a long time. But when you go back and look at it now, it's got some phenomenal stories in there and not just the obvious ones. And when it came out on Blu-ray, there was this this nice public reevaluation of how good season 17 is. It's not just City of Death. Many of the other stories in there are equally good. And then you come to season 18. Now you come to Christopher H. Bidmead, who's putting a lot more. He's putting in the hard science that Douglas Adams wanted to do, but getting scripts like The Horns of Nymon made that difficult. Christopher H. Bidmead is giving us lectures on tachyonics. You have your chronic hysteresis. You have e-space. You have a meditation on evolution. You have back-to-back colony ship stories. And then for the first time, really, with Warrior's Gate and Legopolis, you get stories that don't explain all of the goings-on to you. So it's up to the reader to try and work for themselves from the clues what exactly is happening. The novelization of Warrior's Gate I covered on the show last month, and the novelization of Warrior's Gate explains everything, but it explains it in poetic terms. So again, the reader does have to do a little bit of thinking. And Legopolis is the same thing. In the book, Bidmeet explains who the Watcher is, and he explains a lot more of the science. But again, he's writing in poetry not just prose. So whereas Christopher, whereas, whereas Terrence Dix is going to start a book with a very declarative sentence about where you are, through the ruins of the city, stalk the ruins of a man. It was a place of infinite evil. Those are some of, oh, sorry, it was a place of ancient evil, I should say. Terrence did these great you are there opening sentences. The first sentence of Legopolis is poetry. Events cast shadows before them, but the huger shadows creep over us unseen. And that's the plot, but you don't know that it's the plot just yet because it hasn't happened yet. It's a really fascinating, grabbing sense, and it goes through my head a couple of times a month at least. Uh, yeah, I mean that's something that I've uh, 
I loved about Bidmead's stuff in this case in particular is that it is elliptical. I mean, Bidmead gets credit for science for for bringing up the scientific elements of the show there, uh, even though as I as I think um, uh, Douglas Adams the, the, was actually had a fair bit of like solidly hard science and made it into stories like um, uh, like a Nightmare of Eden. I think the thing is that Bidmead has this has a sense of presenting this stuff in a straight faced way, whereas I'm. Um, Whereas Adam's making it look like it's a bit of a laugh meant that people didn't take it seriously as science fiction. Right. But what um, I think Bidmead really masters there is that he catches and expresses uh, the poetry of science uh, in a way. Specifically, it is that it is that combination of the um, uh, the uh, the real scientific idea and the sort of mythic extrapolation of it. I mean, the fact that he starts out with that wonderful description of entropy. Can I'm trying to see if I can find the line again there where he actually says what or he describes entropy as basically the the rust on the wheels, the the the, the, the weeds in the vegetable garden, and a sense of disorder and chaos that's expressed in that poetic terms, and then gradually builds that up till he's sort of extended that idea of entropy to reflect the whole idea of the sort of despair that is facing the doctor, and that he actually feels like that the what he needs to create in response to that is structure and positive action. He's taken the, taken the literal idea and gotten more and more metaphorical until it has become this this basically this idea that ha, this idea that has no connection to the real science anymore, but that expresses expresses a truth in that way that only poetry can. It's it's astonishing, I think, and it's I, revisiting as a grown up it was it was astonishing to see that yes, that really is the poetry of science. And the novelization even gets further into it because the novelization talks about Maxwell's laws. The the novelization talks about Heisenberg's uncertainty principle, which I would have heard about for the first time reading this book at age 11. Mm. There's literal poetry as Adric reads Paradise Lost. And then there's a line that I know has great meaning for you, John. What is the first law of crisis? Uh, Yes, um, uh, the 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 line that um uh, that he throws away early on in the book is that the doctor refers to the first law of crisis as panic about one thing at a time, and uh, that ha- is something that I've had to introduce my boss to at work when he's when he's been having some moments <laughs> there, and he absolutely embraced this and has genuinely become a useful effect. Of course, what's also wonderful is that that line in of in, of, of the first law of crisis is not just Bidmead being gratuitously witty, which he is which he is known to do. That line pays off at the end of the book, as I found out on rereading. Just a passing mention as the doctor is like dealing with being shot at by the master in this very thing. He has to, he evokes the first law of crisis and focuses only on disconnecting the cable. I'm going to read is- the passage because I have it flagged because I knew that was coming. Yeah. This is page 124. The doctor jerked his head round to look back and was astonished to find the master's face grinning at him from behind the glass of the control room window. Of course. With his target so close to the antenna, the master dared not risk firing a high-energy beam. A ricochet could disrupt transmission. But what was he up to now? The doctor dismissed the question and, obeying the first law of crisis, concentrated on the cable. And, of course, he basically dies on the very next page. So you're right. I had forgotten that the first law of crisis comes back and is the way the doctor gets out of the, gets out of the crisis, gets out of the plot, and unfortunately yes. gets out of his fourth regeneration. Yeah, and I mean the, the the things like that that pay off. I think mean, the events casting shadows before themselves, which basically is the explanation of the Watcher that is then dangled as a mystery until 
literally the last page of the book or the, the continue the hits, hints get more and more clear as they go along but still that's the theme that sets up from the very beginning runs to the end i mean kate and i would tend to tend to steal that for our books directly i mean we tended to go for first sentences that set up themes and images that would pay off throughout i mean the opening of vampire science uh, about the girl was headed for a fall mm. uh, that that is that kind of a thing is is i think this is where it begins for me really learning that that you could do that sort of extension of the the imagery in fact you mentioned something else there when you were talking about um, the things that it, the other influence it brings in one of the things i loved on reread that i didn't pick up at the time was that yes they introduced milton they introduced the idea of of adric coping with the idea of, act, of actually reading poetry and the rhythm and identifying the, the lucifer with the master and all that imagery stuff there but then he calls back to that later on when the monitor is reading out re- reading out the numbers in Legopolis in their in their language there and the rhythm of it there and Adric makes the connection with the poetry. I mean literally it is the poet the, the, the poetic aspects of the science of the scientific exploration and the sci- and the actual science and the science fiction. And I mean if there's one other pat- little description that I'd flagged which I'm trying to uh, find the page again. Uh, this is on one oh five I've got in my notes. Yes where it's just a passing description of um uh, of a circuit board that as as um as the doctor is rummaging around in the bubble memory and there's just a line there which um he's removing it from the computer the thing he eased out was a long rectangle the color of emerald to which was attached a neat pattern of small objects that looked like large flat beetles with silver legs Tegan recognized them as some sort of electronic component what kind of a man looks at a circuit board and sees that and it's, brings that image back to us? That's George. That's just genius. <laughs> and I will echo you on page 59. This is the monitor chanting the code into his um, speaker. The sound was meaningless to Adric. It was composed of short words that the monitor articulated with great clarity, carefully separating each from the next as though every syllable were precious. Somehow Adric was reminded of the words in the story about the angel. That's, that's Christopher H. Bidmead is writing a love letter to science and computer programming, and he's putting it in poetic terms that would not occur to most of us. It's yeah, it's like this. There's this wonderful sense of of Christopher Bidmead as a, I mean a a genuine eccentric mind in the best way that comes across here in the in these books. That this is someone who we don't know this at the time, but this is as as young fans because we are. I mean, we are, in my case, an incipient computer nerd and um, responding to um, all this sort of to all these sorts of elements there as um, uh, of, the, of the computer side of thing. We don't know that this is also a guy who was hanging out in theater circles in London in the late 60s, dating Helen Mirren and generally uh, having having a, a life that goes well outside of what you would think of as a straight up nerd into something, some, something very artistic and insightful. And in some cases, possibly drug at all that I have to wonder about. <laughs> <laughs> Which brings me to another point I wanted to raise. At the end of the story, Tom Baker falls from what is meant to be George Bank telescope, crashes to the ground, is able to reach out into the shadows to summon the watcher, and is able to speak very poetic final words. However, he then regenerates into Peter Davison with Peter Davison's original dark brown hair before that's changed for season 19. 
Christopher H. Bidmead had a different idea about having the doctor regenerated to who was possibly one of his uh, former girlfriends. What happens in a parallel universe where Tom Baker falls from the telescope and regenerates into Helen Mirren? Well, my thoughts about that, I mean, aside from my general, oh, this would have been incredibly awesome, is immediately followed with, with yeah, but then Helen Mirren would have been stuck doing Fort of Doomsday. <laughs> Although, to be fair, one of the 1985 Twilight Zones that she was in was not much better than Fort of Doomsday in quality. These are the things that young actresses and actors have to survive. So yes. I'm sure she would have made it very she would have, she would have made it very watchable. Yes. I mean, I'm just picturing I mean, you can see when you're watching Fort of Doomsday, Peter Davison struggling mightily to breathe life into this sort of material there. And yes. I just I would just not have wished that on anyone in the world, especially not a, a, someone who is now a genuine legend. But when it comes to that regeneration sequence there, uh, one of the things that I I was in two minds about when I was 11 years old, because I liked con- I liked the connection back to the original TV episodes, and I missed the things that um, uh, Bidmead leaves out of the novelization, like the random flashback glimpses that are yes. that are added in of the Doctor's past. Um, but I but what I found that I thought was um, another crucial bit of of dramatic learning that I that I made. I didn't from from this book as an example of something that I learned early on is how he changes the lead up to the regeneration on TV. Uh, the doctor is the doctor is out there um, on the on the on the top of the telescope. Uh, the master tilts it so the doctor is bound to fall. The the doctor manages to disconnect the cable and hen, ends up hanging from it uh, and tries to climb onto the tries to climb onto the onto the uh, scaffolding of the of the telescope. And 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 falls, which is dramatic. It's effective. It's a hell of a scene on screen. What Elbid does Elbid. at that moment. Yep, Elbid. That was his. That was his username on Records Doctor Who in the mid '90s, where you and I first crossed paths. Just for yes. everyone's else elucidation. Yes, but what Bidme does in this version here, he turn he turns that around. The Doctor does not disconnect the cable. Before he falls, he falls, grabs onto the cable by the connector, and he is faced with the with with this moment where the cable can support his weight. He might be able to climb back up, but if he did, but if but if it, as every second that cable stays connected, the master has could has the whole universe in the palm of his hand. Everyone is under threat, and the doctor has to choose. To disconnect the cable while he's holding from it, knowing that neither side on its own will be able to support his weight and that he's going to fall. Suddenly, it's about the doctor making a dramatic choice, and that is the absolute center of drama. I mean, all the way back to the ancient Greeks, the, the drama hinges on your, your on the choices your protagonist makes and the consequences of this. And this is the doctor having to choose that he is going to going to give up his own life with no real chance of escape, because. Again, of that first law of crisis there, because the, what has to be dealt with at that moment must be dealt with, and he has he has to make that choice. That was a huge moment, and it's one of those cases where I think that it's the writer revisiting his story and making it making it far more effective. And I want to point out to you that in the next half of this program, where I, where I do my audio essay reading through the novelization, I am going to raise that same point. But I do want to preface that by saying I credit learning that point from you. You mentioned this, I think, on Rec Arts in the early to mid-90s. So I had not noticed that the 
on-screen death is a little different from the book death, and you pointed out exactly that the book death makes the doctor an active participant, and he's choosing to do this for the greater good. Yeah, it's that moment where you realize that the doctor is not just this woolly-minded person who has been, like, in a, in large ways, a sort of wandering through this story, cause, yeah, as, as he himself is saying, uh, blundering through and causing and causing large parts of the problem, bringing the master to Legopolis and everything like that. He is, when it comes down to it, hugely heroic. And that's a wonderful element that Bidmead has has brought in here with this with this this science hero, this person who is it was this combination of, of of eccentricity, but also understanding, and that includes understanding of himself and of what he needs to do. And wow, it's weird how the history of this just continues to intertwine. There, I'd forgotten that I'd been blathering about that even decades ago. <laughs> So season 18 was made up of seven stories. This is the sixth one to be novelized. So this is the sixth week on this show that I've been talking about season 18. I have mentioned many other times over the last six weeks how much I adore Tom Baker's season 18 performance. Even as he is being essentially forced out of his own show after seven years, he finds ways to give a fresh and fascinating new take on the character. And perversely, it also helps that Tom Baker had a bout of ill health earlier in the season because he looks older. He looks more haggard. He's gone from 41 to 48. You and I are just on the other side of that of that latter age. So this is exactly how you want the doctor to look when he's about to regenerate, because this is a doctor who is no longer at his peak. And he looks a lot less vibrant than he was back in 1974. So I've talked about that already. What I want to talk about with you are the two principal guest characters on this show. So you have the Doctor, you have the three companions. There's a brief walk-on from the guy from Genesis of the Daleks as a sardonic detective inspector. You have Delore Whiteman's amazing turn. We'll come back to that as, as Auntie Vanessa. But the two main guest characters here are Anthony Ainley and John Fraser. And I think they both give tremendous performances and i want to talk about john fraser first he was as a kid i love the idea of the monitor in the book i then saw legopolis on tv about a year after reading the book and i was immediately won over by his performance so a couple of years ago i went out and i purchased you can still get it not out of print john fraser's autobiography close up what's distressing about this is that he does not mention This is a guy who was a bona fide movie star in the early 60s. He hobnobbed with a lot of big names, bold-faced type names, and he talks about them in the book. You know, uh, personal encounters at Dirk Bogart's house, going on vacation with Ursula Andress. Does not mention Legopolis in his autobiography. Does not mention Tom Baker. Does not mention playing practical jokes with a young Matthew Waterhouse. So the book is not great. On that angle, because I bought this book hoping for at least a passing reference to Doctor Who, I guess when he was writing his memoirs, it didn't occur to him. But I think he gives a terrific performance. What do you think of the gravitas that he brings to the role of the monitor? One of the few guest characters on Doctor Who is mentioned in a later story he gets called back to in Earthshock. So one of the few guest characters on the show to leave a footprint behind him. What do you want to say about his performance? I think what uh, is most effective about uh, the monitor, and I think this is something that is really underlined in the, the novelization too, is the sense that I mean, he this he manages to bring absolute conviction to this. And that to me is, I think, the uh, 
is I think the difference between a season 17 performance and a season 18 performance here mm. is that is that no one is doing this is doing this as as a turn, and this guy has this guy um has to be has to deal with has to sell these absolutely huge and to to uh, to sensible people uh, ludicrous ideas about basically the entire universe is suddenly falling apart, and he does it. I mean, I I anyone who can uh, who can just who can um, uh, have this have the be able to absolutely straight face tell you that okay, the universe has passed the point of total collapse. We have been holding it together with basically our words all this time, and he he manages to sell this, and it's um it is astonishing, and I am just I think that this is um uh, one of those cases where he, he manages to paint this vast picture of of devastation that is happening and how just how serious this all is, in a way that. We we often associate this with Tom Baker as well. The ability to take um take ludicrous situations and and find a heart in them, and John Fraser does that. Interestingly, I don't think Tom does that as much here as he does in other stories. I mean, there are bits where I mean we know that Tom did not actually like the script for Legopolis. He has he uh, he has a wonderful sign off on the on the uh, DVD commentary at the end uh, where he. Well, <laughs> Where he, which basically says he did not know that two, that two hours could pass so slowly or whatever it was there. But <laughs> Although he, but, the line yeah. readings that he gives for nothing like this has ever happened before and a chain of a chain of circumstances that fragments law that holds the universe together, those two lines in part two are delivered so well that I can still hear them in my head as he says them, even if I can't do the full-on Tom Baker impersonation. I think he does very good line readings. If, if he, even if he didn't respect or understand the script, I think it still comes across. Yes, I think there are, he has moments, and I think that one of the interesting things looking at Legopolis on screen versus film is that, strangely, the direction doesn't um, necessarily bring out some of the big moments. I'm not sure how much of that is Tom's performance or other actors' performances there, but that there are bits where where the meaning is not sold. Like for example, the the lines early on in the cloister room where Tom is just explaining the uh, basically he, he introduces the idea that entropy increases, but then he completely rattles through the line about how the more you put things together, the more they keep falling into bits. That's the that's the true essence of entropy, and I've never heard a truer word spoken or whatever the exact the, act, the actual exact word is there. He um uh, he just barrels through that at such speed that I, I, as our first viewing, young eleven year old John completely missed all this and missed the importance of it there. And as a little note there, actually, just something I just realized that broadens out from this is that one, thi- one thing that, um, uh, that the novelization does so well is that it does slow down. It gives you the emphasis on those moments there. It really sells the, 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 the explanation the me- and the meaning of this concept there. And similarly, as it goes along, the one thing the book does that I, is em- I saw in this reading is that it spends more time selling the urgency of moments that are happening on screen, you don't get the sense that uh, flushing the master out of the TARDIS is probably going to destroy it. It's going to yes. bury basically. A, it's basically a watery grave for the TARDIS. I mean, in Tom's case, in that one there, his whole idea of, of the big smile he comes up with uh, when he when he suggests the um, uh, suggests just materialize the TARDIS underwater and open the door, it makes it sound almost like this is going to be fun. Yeah, that's true. And. I think the 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 uh, the seriousness of that, the urgency of we have to get out of this out of them being grabbed by these two idiot police and policemen, uh, 
the the sense there of, of pace and uh, energy, which um, I think um, Peter Grimwade undersells because he's focused more on ominousness rather than uh, the the any urgency in the moment. So it's an unusual couple of directorial choices on screen, but I think the novelization uh, manages to nail the importance of that there. And the other prominent guest star is Anthony Ainley. This is his second time on Doctor Who. The previous story, he was playing the Doctor's good friend and staunch ally. And now he's playing a different character, and he's playing a new version of the Master, very different, mostly from what Roger Delgado had been doing earlier in the decade. Let me play you an audio clip. The data's reached the CBE. It's stabilizing. So it works. Congratulations, Doctor. I always knew you'd do it. You did most of this. Oh, no. I was little more than a humble assistant, but I have learned a great deal. And now I think it's time for you to go and explain the presence of your friends. There's quite a hubbub outside. Not quite right. One mistake now could ruin everything. I know that, Doctor. And it could happen so easily. What do you mean? The universe is hanging on a thread. A single recursive pulse down that cable and the CVE would close forever. Even a humble assistant could do it. You're mad. Peoples of the universe, please attend carefully. The message that follows is, is vital, vital to, the to the future, future of, you of you all. The choice, the choice for you all is simple. A continued existence under my guidance. Or total annihilation. At the time of speaking, the fate of the... No, Doctor, I'm merely reporting the state of affairs. I have it in my power now to save them. Or destroy them. You're utterly mad. Back, Doctor, the proceedings must not be interrupted. (laughs) It's mine. The CVE. So that is Anthony Ainley's first real villain moment, because he's not really in parts one and two. And in part three, he allies with the doctor. For most of part four, they're uneasy allies. This is the moment where the doctor realizes this is a new and very dangerous master, unlike the one that has gone before. What do you think now? A lot can be said about Anthony Ainley. He has several other appearances on the show after this is the master, and we'll talk about those as the books come out. But what do you think of Anthony Ainley on basically day one? The thing about uh, Ainley's master, I mean, which is jarring from a modern perspective, is, ha- is again, how straight he, he tries to play this part here. But Legopolis is really, de- is really determined to uh, sell the master as a completely straight uh, villain who can who he can be he can be pleasant and and charming and manipulative as he is with Nissa earlier in the story, but that from the beginning of Legopolis, long before Ainley actually appears on screen, he is a monster, mm. and that is something that they have um uh, that they really sell. I mean, he spends the first two episodes, I mean, just basically everyone he comes across, he he malevolently kills for. For just almost just for the fun of it, he is yes. stalking Egan and terrifying her. Again, that is a sequence that I will say is really well directed. In the novelization, it come, you get the real sense of of Tegan being in this sort of Alice in Wonderland moment. Only the, the only the creatures in Wonderland are actively trying to kill her. Yes. So so Ainley is is built up by the script even before he gets to actually deliver lines as this 
just this horrific creature. And then after this here, you ha- you again you keep hitting these these notes of just just epic malevolence. Again, the the the, the Lucifer comparisons that are brought on Milton for me the defining moment for for Ainley in that those early scenes there is that line about envy is the beginning of all true greatness. Mm. As he's just he's congratulating the doctor on finally finally getting this, and the idea that he is. He's not being smug about this. This is, this is what he is. He is this, this, this grasping, relentless creature. I'm not sure if he's ever better as the master than he is in Blagopolis in terms of the, the shadings he comes up with. I mean, he is. He gets in. He he, he has the moments of going over the top. But what impresses me is that in these in this story is the ones where he does where he manages to stay just under the top. And he is um, being, he is just, when, when he's de- delivering the even humble assistant could do it mm. line there. He is, he is just being a bastard. And it's not, it's not like he's not being lurid or campy about that there. He is just, um, uh, he's just giving the doctor the massive finger. I mean, the same two fingers he uses to type with. <laughs> So a couple of quick hits before we move on to our game of 20 questions. When I watched The Power of the Doctor, I was delighted to hear the reference to Auntie Vanessa. When I was at Gallifrey one, two months ago, and Chris Chibnall was there and was doing the live commentary over of Power of the Doctor in the main stage, he mentions that he made several efforts to put Easter eggs from Legopolis and other regeneration stories into Power of the Doctor, which is why you have the shout-out to Auntie Vanessa. When you were watching that for the first time last year, and you heard Auntie Vanessa's name mentioned for the first time in over 40 years, what was your gut reaction? My gut reaction, strangely, was that it felt perfectly natural. Hmm. I mean, it was just that sense there that, this, that, that of, of course this would come up. This is Auntie Vanessa... I, I actually met Delore Whitman at a convention down in Australia a long oh, wow. time ago, and uh, she was she was lovely. She had quite a career down here outside of this, and she was somewhat astonished that this this one day part, basically, in terms of what she actually had to do of filming and playing with 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 Janet, uh, had become in in the eyes of fandom this epic moment. And it really is because this. I mean, Auntie Vanessa continues to define uh, Tegan up until her last episode there. I mean, even she calls back in Tegan's last episode there. Yes. And that she is, she, she has this, she has this impact um, just because I think of, of the writing and because of how much this is sold by the, the two actors that this, that this, that this matters. I mean, Auntie Vanessa is this, this funny, likable character here who just wanders through uh, the adventures there and then is horribly killed and, it scars Tegan from then on. And it's just the fact that, of course, this comes back up. It's like the mention of Adric in that same episode there. Tegan Tegan is one of the first companions you really get a sense has been scarred by her experiences, and those scars stay. As I said, Legopolis um, uh, sells the the horror story aspect of what Tegan is going through in the TARDIS. I mean, you get... uh, One of the things I was struck by, again, on on rereading, is the contrast between... uh, the way the Doctor and Adric walk through the TARDIS, where things can be a bit weird, but basically Adric is with the Doctor, and it's like 
it's like wandering through the corridors of Willy Wonka's chocolate factory with Willy Wonka <laughs> by your side. It's scary, but there's that is sometimes what's happening there. But and this is this sort of bizarre, unpredictable figure. But fundamentally, it's all right. Tegan's side of the action, it is not all right. And that's something that I think they 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 everyone latched onto that that sense of of horror in, in the TARDIS and in, and the effect on this character who has it has lasted throughout this. In a way, interestingly, that Nissa doesn't, and that's another little thing that I was that I thought was improved in the book, by the way. If I can give you a, another quick digression there. Oh, of course. Nissa, yeah, Nissa in the book gets a whole different emotional range than Sarah Sutton gets, gets to play on screen. When she delivers those lines about the world that she grew up in, blotted out forever, in the book she she is furious, she is angry, and that anger just never gets to be expressed on screen. There, there are other moments there where she gets to be she gets to have anger at the master and his actions there and it's a it's a it's a very different side of the character than we get to see on screen and i wonder what this reflects on beneath side there and we never quite get the same impact of 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 them of her her attitude towards the master having destroyed everyone she loves even in castor valva i think i think Bidney just sort of uh, glosses past that because again possibly first love crisis there's no time to bring it up Whereas with Tegan, every time she sees the Master, even in stories like King's Demons, her first reaction is just is to throw a fucking knife at the guy's head. <laughs> I think you got to bleep, bleep that, but nonetheless. Yeah. And to double back to Delore Whitman for a moment, one of the things that I notice is I read a chapter, then I go to the episode transcript, and I look for scenes that are deleted or expanded. Hmm. Auntie Vanessa in the book has a lot of dialogue, but it's primarily functional. I don't know if this is Delore Whitman ad-libbing on location or if the uh, actual rehearsal script had all these decides, but she has a lot of talking to herself, a lot of stray, muttered, sarcastic asides. It's a wonderful, natural performance, and she brings a lot more to it on location Mm -hmm. than you get captured in the novelization. So that's another great thing about her performance. That's what you and I would be, sarcastically muttering under our breath when somebody else is acting crazy next to us. It's a really interesting performance that she gives and you don't get half of that in the novelization yeah that's an interesting point there i think that i mean delora basically i think from what she's saying she had a was having a ball with janet fielding and basically getting to getting to i i don't remember how much she said she was embroidering on this sort of thing but she said they had they just had this great rapport that they had she she really enjoyed the day of filming but she thought it was just it was just a project a, a day she didn't think it would have great significance and I think that some of that must, I mean, some of that, oh, dude, let's get a man from the garage kind of stuff there may well have been improvised there. And um, But I think also that, nonetheless, Bimmead was aware of the significance of this. And uh, one of the other interesting things that strikes me is that in, in storytelling terms, uh, Auntie Vanessa is often in the, is in the position of basically what Kate would refer to as the shreddy. The character who was killed early on to de- demonstrate how the monster or the villain works. Yes. <laughs> <Shreddy. in> the, <laughs> That's good. Only in this case here, there, there are two of them. There's the policeman who's killed literally in the opening scene, which is the traditional shreddy moment. Um, but then but then Auntie Vanessa, who's kept around long enough for us to actually like her, and then and then we feel that impact. And they've re- they really stretch out that opening sequence. I mean, one thing that I can I can I think I can effectively criticize Legopolis for on screen, by the way, is that it is that it does move at the speed of continental drift for much of the story. It um it takes it takes an incredible amount of time on that build up 
uh, the, the 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 whole first like episode and a half of the story is all about something something terrible that might happen in the near future, without us actually getting much of a hint of what's happening beyond stuff that's very small scale here and now. Right. They, they give a great weight to it there, but I mean, what I've noticed in the story propelling point of view is that it takes until halfway through episode one before Auntie Vanessa is killed, and um, that's a long stretch of time. I mean. The halfway point of the of the first episode is actually when Tegan first pokes her nose into the TARDIS, and up to that point, the only things that have happened in the story, aside from uh, aside from the, the policeman getting bumped off in the opening scene, has been the doctor talking uh, the doctor talking about the chameleon circuit and Tegan and Vanessa trying to change a flat tire. I mean, by that point in her first episode, Leela has already killed two people and met the devil, so it's just a completely <laughs> different speed of storytelling. And that's one of the things that's fascinating about Legopolis. I can understand why people might not have been keen on it at the time there, but I find it hypnotic that they well, do something points, that slow and that in that, that intense. I, I agree with you in part. I want to talk about two points. Number one, it is fitting for the for a story that ends in the destruction of a portion of the universe. It needs to start small small scale. It yeah. needs to start with Tegan going to work on her first day, forgetting to shut the door of the house police officer trying to make a phone call it's appropriate for the story that starts as small a scale as possible and then ends up as grand a scale as possible i think it works the other point is and i brought this up a couple of weeks ago on a different recording this is basically a counterpoint to unearthly child unearthly child begins with a police officer discovering the tardis and totter's yard and walking on by logopolis begins with a police officer discovering the tardis and then getting killed by it this is the story where the doctor mentions Totter's Yard for the first time since 1963. So Christopher H. Bidmead, I assume, is consciously referencing Doctor Who's very first story in Tom Baker's last. So this is perhaps why I enjoy part one a little more than you did, because for me, I'm seeing that almost conscious connection back to the very first story, the same way that Chris Chibnall in Power of the Doctor consciously links back to this one, another link in Doctor yeah. Who's chain. Yes, let me make it clear. I really, really like that first episode. I can understand why people find it slow, but I just think it's hypnotic. And I think one of the things is that in the book in particular, one of the things I, I got a sense of, even at age 11, at the very beginning here, was the sense that this is a book about Doctor Who as an ongoing saga. It's not just the Doctor's latest adventure. It has all these links to recent things the Doctor and Adric have been through. It has them, It is building on their experiences. It is reaching back to the ancient past of the Doctor. I mean, also, another thing they do is for the first time in in a, in, in the better part of a decade is refer to the Doctor, why the Doctor left Gallifrey in the first place. Yes. And they'll mention of just there being other pressing reasons at the time, which just, which just keeps things wonderfully uncertain. On a finder's <laughs> keeper's basis, yes. Yes, and the idea that Doctor Who is this is not just a collection of adventures; it is an ongoing story. And I think Bidmead really drives that home in literary terms, not just in a well. This is just like the time I met the Vardens kind of way, like you get with some more clumsy continuity references. Yes. You have this real sense of that this is this is a story, and that really caught the imagination of young me as I was having my mind blown by it. <laughs> And the fact that E-Space is vital to the survival of the universe right after the E-Space trilogy. So when the Doctor says, we passed through one of your voids, Monitor, that was a very important part of the Doctor's life, is where he met Adric and lost Ramana and K-9. So it ties the entire season up in a nice little bow. 
yes, it's like that little set of five stories, which totally transforms Doctor Who. I mean, in the course of those five stories, they've replaced the entire cast. Yes. And, uh, and it just has become, it is this this transformational moment here. And it is, the, the, it is reaching back to the old, to the ancient stuff, and emphasizing how old the TARDIS is throughout and and the, all that stuff there. And then leading leading up to the creation of this new Doctor Who, which um, is able, able to go forward from there. So it's it's quite an achievement, really. I will, I, I have I have nothing but respect for what for what Christopher H. Bidney did during the course of that season. And speaking of achievement, I know Kate could not be with us today, so we're not going to play a double game of twenty questions. But you and I are going to play a single game of twenty questions. I am one Doctor Who story randomly chosen from the randomizer.net between 1963 and 2022. You are going to guess with 20 yes or no questions exactly which story I am. Are you ready to play? Okay. Um, let's see. Let's see. Trying to narrow, basically just trying to narrow down uh, the stories as best I can. There have been very different philosophies on how to do your first question on this show some people are very methodical some people are very technical uh mark who's been on the show more than anybody from the trap one podcast does an opener to see if he can get it in one with one random guess and that would set an all-time unbreakable record (laughs) i think we're gonna have to narrow this down methodically here because of because as i mentioned i am a computer nerd so all right well i guess this was randomly chosen. You're not like going to going to do something sneaky, like um, uh, like pick time rift or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is one randomly chosen story somewhere between unearthly and power of the doctor. Okay. Um. Uh, first question. Is it a 20th century Doctor Who story? Yes. Yes, I am a 20th century Doctor Who story. Question two. Okay. Well, that's already taken out at least five doctors worth, so that's something there. Ah. Uh. Am I a 1970s story? No, I am not a 1970s story. Question three. Hmm. Am I a 1980s story, I guess? Yes, I am a 1980s story. Question four. Okay, I'm now... So now I've managed to get that down to mere mere 70 or so stories, I think. (laughs) Three doctors, many companions, yes. Yeah. Am I before or after the hiatus of 1985? (laughs) I am before the hiatus. Question five. Oh, great. So I've still got four seasons to choose. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Am I Peter Davison? Yes, I, I am Peter Davison. You're, you're narrowing it down. Question six. You may get this in less than ten. Question six. Hmm. I'm trying to think of something, something a little more efficient if it's possible there. <laughs> oh. oh, what the heck? Am I from season 19? No, I am not from season 19. Question 7. I don't know about the 10 there, yeah. Am I from season 20? No, I am not from season 20. That brings us to question 8. You have now narrowed it down, I believe, to 6 stories. Okay. Now, you're guaranteed to get it in less than 20 because you have 13 questions remaining and only 6 stories. That gives you a little flexibility. Yeah, but I'm thinking about the entertainment value. I'm trying to think if I can come up with a clever enough question that will actually in, give the readers, the, the listeners to this podcast, some entertainment value instead of me just boringly working through. Um, Indeed. 
do you have Tegan in you? Fittingly, and this is a random choice, this was not done on purpose, but just like Legopolis, I do have Tegan in me. Ah, okay, let's narrow it down. Question nine. That eliminates two stories, so now you have a one in four shot. Although, actually, no, because Tegan, okay. uh, Tegan is in to... Caves of Androzani, so that's actually a five. You've only eliminated one story. <laughs> Do I have large numbers of floppy rubber monsters in, in me? <laughs> hmm. No, I do not have large numbers of floppy rubber monsters. That'll bring us to question 10, I believe. Okay, so that's got us down to two uh, stories out of those, <laughs> out of those first four. Yes. <laughs> so, uh, okay. Um, oh, well, am I the Awakening? Yes, I am the Awakening. Oh, good. <laughs> so I'm actually going to down to a point some, flip. <laughs> those are some creative questions. I mean, some people ask... Uh, so, for example, Jim Sangster last week asked, am I shot in a four by three aspect ratio? That's also a good way of separating out the 20th versus the 21st century. Yeah. <laughs> that would have been elegant. I, I wish I could have come up with some sort of clever thing about do I have crap CSO, but that would have made my life a lot harder. <laughs> That's also a uh, value judgment, of course, because yeah. uh, in 1970, it would have been considered state of the art. Now, had Kate been here, her story would have been a 21st century story. So your questions would have rapidly diverged, but we will save that for next time. And there's definitely going to be a next time. Oh, yes. John, give my best to Kate. I hope she is uh, back up and at him very quickly. Thank you very much for joining me. This was a lot of fun. And thank you. And I just wish you could have done this sooner so we would so we'd actually have time to edit out our completely random nonsense that we came out with. <laughs> <laughs> well, doing it live to tape definitely has its joys. All right, John, have a great night. We'll talk soon. Be seeing you. Doctor Who, Legopolis by Christopher H. Bidmead, televised as Legopolis, teleplay by Christopher H. Bidmead, televised in February and March 1981, published in October 1982, cover artist, Andrew Skilleter. In theory, the TARDIS should be able to change its appearance to blend in unobtrusively wherever it happens to materialize. In practice, however, because of a fault in the chameleon circuit, it always looks like a police box, a minor inconvenience the Doctor now hopes to correct. Fixing the mechanism involves a visit to Earth and a trip to the planet Legopolis, normally a quiet little place that keeps itself to itself. But on this occasion, the meddling presence of the Doctor's arch-enemy, the Master, ensures the disruption of normality. And even the Master is horrified by the threat of total chaos he unintentionally precipitates until he finds a way to turn the imminent destruction of the universe to his own advantage. I want to start off with a question. Why do we read? I know when I first started to read, my mother says that I read my first sentence, unaided, out of her library copy of Anna Karenina, the summer that I was almost five years old. The one expense my parents never spared where I was concerned was books. I always had a steady supply of children's books, magazines, comic books, which I separated out into stacks based on the publisher, Marvel, or DC, or Whitman. In other words, superheroes, superheroes, and Disney property. Then later on came 
novelizations or graphic novel adaptations of the Peanuts TV specials, the Hardy Boys, the Choose Your Own Adventure books, and then finally the Targets, starting in 1985. That's how I learned to read. But again, why do we read? The best explanation I ever saw comes from, well, from Christopher H. Bidmead. Not in the Legopolis novelization, but in his next one after that. Where he explains to us, and I'll talk about this more when his next book rolls around in about six weeks or so, but he says in that later novelization that in the Doctor's opinion, experience is no substitute for books. That's it. That's the reason we read. Experience is no substitute for books. Books are how we learn about the world. Books, when you're kids, is how you learn morals, the rules of social interaction, the benefit of teamwork. I learned that stuff from books, not the schoolyard, where every morning I was Charlie Brown and life was Lucy pulling away the football. In fact, true story, the oldest surviving short story I ever wrote was in my first grade composition book, a story about Lucy pulling away the football. Books take you to places and times you're too young to visit or that no longer exist. I learned a lot from the Legopolis novelization starting at age 11. So, what I want to do here with the rest of this essay is go through my 12 favorite bits of prose, one for each chapter in the book. Yes, I know, I know, a top 10 list would be neater, but then I would have to skip two chapters. And this is my show, so I'm just declaring that top 12 lists are a thing now. That's what I do. Top 12 lists. And one more shout-out to Bidmead, who both scripted the TV story and wrote the novelization. A former actor himself. He reads the unabridged BBC audiobook, and that's kept me company on several long car rides over the years. I think I even played a snippet from it during the November 2016 L.I. Who panel mentioned at the top of the program. Chapter 1, page 13, quote, The doctor went on to explain that while he didn't mind being pestered with questions in the normal course of events, didn't mind at all, in fact found the boy's ceaseless interrogation of anything and everything rather stimulating. There were times, and this was one of them, when wise were unwise and silence is golden, end quote. I love the relationship between the fourth doctor and Adric, the truculent young stowaway with the artful Dodger-esque pickpocket tendencies, and the bohemian absent-minded uncle suddenly thrust into the role of mentor. Baker and Waterhouse, no matter how well they didn't get along off-camera, as Jim Sangster told us last week during episode 71, they do have terrific on-screen chemistry mostly, I'm sure, due to Bidmead's writing and script editing in the back half of season 18. This chapter is all about the Doctor teaching Adric both hard science, we meet the TARDIS's logic junction, essentially angel hair pasta with lights traveling up and down each strand, and we learn about Maxwell's equations and the second law of thermodynamics and transcendental equations and chameleon circuits and how rainy is London. The wise or unwise passage is relevant for me, because I discovered this book in the sixth grade. At the time, my school teacher was a 64-year-old man, an Italian-American with that classic Brooklyn accent, CF The Chase, Episode 3, who wore three-piece suits to class and smoked pipes during recess, and claimed to have once designed a wardrobe for Margaret Mead during one of her trips to Samoa. 
crusty old guy who handed out strikes in class for bad behavior, such as asking him why anything. And if you got three strikes in a day, as in the baseball expression, three strikes and you're out, you had to write out the periodic table as punishment. Wise were definitely unwise in that class. I topped out at two strikes in a day. Never had to write out the periodic table. Probably explains why I'm so bad at chemistry. Lots of honorable mentions in chapter one. I love the opening line about how events cast shadows before them. That's the plot. The events on Legopolis being so cataclysmic that effects precede cause which is how the Watcher is cast backward in time to warn the Doctor of what's coming. And any line about adorable old Auntie Vanessa. There's a reason why Chris Chibnall included Auntie Vanessa in his script for Power of the Doctor in 2022, the most recent televised Doctor Who story as I record this. Delora Whiteman's performance, and I'm sure her portrayal in the book, and the closing line of the chapter, the Doctor looks up and down the corridor, as if not sure exactly which way the future did lie. Chapter 2. Lots more good moments for Adric and Auntie Vanessa here. Bidme gives us the Doctor's POV finally on page 26, but we mostly see the Doctor through Adric's eyes. Paternal, distracted, full of useful information, full of useless information, prone to bizarre mood swings. That's the essence of the Fourth Doctor, and I've never heard a truer word spoken as somebody once said, and Bidmeet achieves this mostly by showing us all these things via Adric. One thing you'll notice comparing the book to the TV episodes is that there's a lot more dialogue on TV. Auntie Vanessa, with a constant stream of observations bemoaning Tegan's behavior, about half the dialogue is kept for the book, and some of the rest is turned into prose. But Bidmeet's insights into human nature more than make up for any missing dialogue. Page 21 what kind of maintenance schedule are you running here, Auntie V? This tie is completely flat, too. Apologies for my Tegan impression. I clearly should have worked on that some more before recording this. Back to page 21. Aunt Vanessa smiled a faint, disarming smile that had always stood her in good stead when people from strange religious sects turned up on the doorstep. Tegan knew the smile of old and refused to be warmed, end quote. Much of my childhood was spent hiding behind my parents' legs as people from strange religious sects turned up on the doorway of our suburban subdivision. My parents didn't do faint, disarming smiles. Chapter 3 has a wealth of disturbing images. The gravity bubble, which Bidmead viscerally describes as containing a thickening, pearly cloud, or yellowish tinge, in each iteration of the console room. Colder and colder so that the doctor's breath is visible and Adric's fingers turn blue. Aunt Vanessa makes it inside the TARDIS, mistaking it for a laboratory, and Bidme's description of the master through Auntie Vanessa's eyes is a monstrous presence, a chuckling thing. The doctor identifies Tom Georgeson's character's rank tactfully through the pips on his shoulders. I didn't know about rank insignia at age 11, so that was also new knowledge as was the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. This is long before Breaking Bad, of course. But it's the last two paragraphs of the chapter, page 35, that still burn into my brain. In the dreadful transformation, every detail had been perfectly preserved. There was no mistaking the smart blue uniform of Constable Seagrave, who had last been heard of putting in a call down a bad line from the nearby police box. 
The other body was unknown to any of those present. But if Tegan had been there, she would have been able to tell them that the inert shape, shrunken like the constable down to the size of a doll, was all that remained of her Aunt Vanessa. Chapter 4 Lots of competition for best quote. The brief glimpses inside the police inspector's head. The bit about Adric wanting to repay the doctor's kindness after the events of Full Circle and the doctor not being all that bothered by Adric stowing away, which sort of contradicts the end of State of Decay, but I don't care. The word execute on the architectural configuration panel as the doctor jettisons Romana's room, referring almost to Romana herself. What else do you do with an ex's possessions after they've left you? But the winner has to be Adric reading Paradise Lost, pages 42, and 43, quote, The book was all printed in short lines that wasted a lot of the paper on the right-hand side of the page, and they gave the narrative a cumulating rhythm that Adric found unpleasant at first. But as he got into the story, it was about flying people called angels who were at war against the evil creatures that lived in a burning lake. The rhythm seemed to help the way the story built up. The leader of the burning lake dwellers reminded Adric of the master, just as the Master had once been a Gallifreyan and was still a Time Lord, the evil character in the story was Refugee Angel. So although the landscape of the story, with its thunder and lightning and black fire, was so obviously a fiction, the central correspondence with the truth riveted Adric's interest. He was ascending a huge staircase that led to a gate, built of gold and studded with diamonds, when he was jolted back, from the book to the normality of the TARDIS. The door was opening. End quote. Terence often snuck Shakespeare quotes into his prose, but this really adds the literature to Doctor Who literature. I learned about the existence of Paradise Lost at the exact time that Adric did, page 42, and I'll tell you that he grasped the lessons a lot faster than I ever would have. Chapter 5. Like Terence, Bidmead never misses an opportunity to editorialize. Tekin's voice explodes like a shrapnel bomb in the quiet of the console room. The Paradise Lost analogy carries over into this chapter, as the Doctor quotes to Adric about abandoning the TARDIS and potentially being stranded on Earth. They also serve, who only stand and wait. We'll see more of this in the Frontios novelization, too. That's many, many episodes from now. But Bidmead does good, spooky horror, as the moments with Tegan in the cloister room, haunted by the master's off-screen chuckle, is much more atmospheric and disturbing than director Peter Grimway could have mounted in studio, though that's about my only complaint with the direction. But my favorite bit here is Adric's inner narration of the Doctor's encounter with the Watcher on the bridge. Page 52, quote, at first, the figure didn't move, except to keep his face towards the doctor, who was now scrambling over the rusty girders that littered the approach to the bridge. Then Adric saw the mysterious observer detach himself from his point of vigil and move towards the doctor. Like a pair of duelists, they met on the bridge facing each other. The bargaining began. At least it seemed like bargaining from where Adric stood. The doctor's scarf blew wildly in the wind, mimicking the earnest gesticulations of its owner. Whatever the doctor was saying, the other's replies came more slowly and were less animated. But far from calming the doctor down, 
They only seemed to be stirring him on to greater agitation. And then the doctor was turning to gesture towards Adric, as if the boy's presence was somehow part of the debate. But whatever point the doctor was trying to make, the other seemed obstinately to reject. Adric's fear crystallized into a single thought. The doctor was face to face with somebody, or something, of which he too was terribly afraid. And now, Tom Baker. So that was the master. Hmm. How do you deduce that? I just guessed. Never guess, unless you have to. There's enough uncertainty in the universe as it is. But I can help you. Well, can't I? In the ordinary way, yes. This is something far too serious. What sort of something? A chain of circumstances that fragments the law that holds the universe together. Chapter 6. On page 59, Adric likens the sound of the monitor's chanting to the rhythm and meter of Paradise Lost. Adric also shushes Tegan with a finger to his lips, only because he's seen the doctor make that same gesture to him. Bidmead writes Adric stunningly well, and it's a shame that Adric was only a minimal presence in Bidmead's next script and novelization. What I want to talk about with this chapter, though, is page 62, which features significantly different dialogue from TV. On screen, John Fraser, who, shades of James Bree in last week's episode, gives one of my favorite understated Doctor Who guest turns, shows thinly veiled impatience in part two whenever the Doctor asks too many questions about what the Logopolitans are doing. In the book, to the contrary, the Monitor is more chatty and expansive. It's he who explains about the Pharos project on Earth, and the Doctor gets in a wicked follow-up. I understand they're trying to get intelligent life to respond, the Monitor added. The Doctor smiled. But the life is too intelligent to do that before it knows what the Earth people are up to. Chapter 7. Lots of good insight into the Monitor. Adric comes out well, too. On TV, Matthew Waterhouse gives a rather arrogant line reading, We're doing it! In the book, Bidmead instead has him explain to the Monitor about his Alzarian badge for mathematical excellence and how it suits him to the task of being the Monitor's assistant as they try to track down the fault in the TARDIS's chameleon circuit code. The Monitor gets an extra line after the honor of Logopolis is at stake, and more than our honor, much, much more. The Monitor's silver hair is mentioned more than once, and we get the detail that he runs his fingers ornamented with simple rings through his neat silver curls. The last paragraphs of the chapter are one of many bits of foreshadowing that Bidmead uses to end chapters, pointing ahead to some future significant plot development. Page 76. The monitor stood up, and his voice was low and harsh. Interference with the workings of Legopolis. That could be the most dangerous crime in the universe. At the time, it struck Adric as odd, that the monitor should raise his eyes as he spoke, looking not along the length of the street, but fixing his gaze quite definitely on one particular point in the sky. What the monitor was looking at, Adric was soon to discover, but the boy recognized at once the shadow of terror that lurked beneath the surface of those leaden eyes. 
Monitor, I still don't see why you need all these people. Why can't it all be done on machinery? For many uses, machinery is unsurpassed, but Legopolis is not interested in such uses. Block transfer computation cannot be done with computers. Why not? Our manipulation of numbers directly changes the physical world. There is no other mathematics like ours. You mean the computations themselves would affect a computer? Of course, change its nature, cause it to malfunction. Only the living brain is immune. You had a computer out there, you were using it. To record the code, yes. To prepare new algorithms, yes. But we must not use it for, to, for, to run our program. And that is John Fraser making a dialogue fluff into what appears to be a natural bit of flustered pressed exposition. Alas, he does not talk about this in his autobiography. Chapter 8 features Bidmead writing in allusions and metaphors. The master's hypnotic voice convinces Nyssa that he's still her father, even as he outlines for her his plans of conquest. Nyssa more overtly tries to strangle Adric, thanks to the master's arm control device, even while she herself is unaware that anything is happening. Lots more dialogue is converted into prose, although the doctor in the book is much less socially awkward when trying to break news of Auntie Vanessa's death to Tegan. And just as Chapter 4 is where, at age 11, I first learned of Paradise Lost, and as Chapter 7 is where I first learned of hexadecimal notation, my introduction to Thomas Huxley came here, bottom of page 79 to the top of page 80. The cheese board is the world and the pieces, the doctor said aloud, as he began to dislodge the next component in the chain, are the phenomena of the universe, as my old friend Huxley used to say. Or was it chessboard? Yes, chessboard, of course. And then he remembered with a chill the rest of what Huxley had said. He had been speaking of the battle of science to wrest knowledge from that stubborn opponent, the nature of things. But the words might quite as well have applied to the master. The opponent never overlooks a mistake or makes the smallest allowance for ignorance. Ignorance was the word. There was no denying it. He was an ignorant old doctor, and he had made a mistake. Chapter 9. The Master and the Doctor. Shaking Hands. Now that's a cliffhanger for you. This chapter builds quite a bit from TV. There's a deleted scene where the Doctor, Adric, and Nyssa see a dead Logopolitan turn to dust. The Doctor mentions this in a later scene on TV, but we never saw the moment. There are a couple of dialogue zingers conspicuous in their absence from TV. If you consider killing Logopolitans a virtue, and the Doctor to Tegan replies that the master, that revolting man, might well be the last man in the universe, if he carries on like this. The book also contains prose explanations that unlock much of the story, like the unraveling of the causal nexus, interfering with the law of cause and effect, which is how the Watcher came to be. Pages 87 into 88. Who was this dreamlike figure who seemed to be hovering on the edge of their existence? As they pressed on towards the central register, Adric pursued the subject, I was almost sure it was the master. I warned you against unnecessary guesswork, snapped the doctor. But he was the man who told you bad luck was on the way. He was right, said the doctor, and worse to come. Worse. Why was the doctor so sure? And you believe him, the boy persisted. Why? Because he is here, said the doctor, his eyes fixed on the route ahead. Like so much that the doctor said, it seemed to make no sense. It would have puzzled Adric more if he had known that on this occasion the doctor was speaking no more than the exact and literal truth. Chapter 10. Much more dialogue is converted into plain prose, most of pages 98 and 99. 
there's sharper dialogue between the Doctor and the Master, uneasy allies in print, than on TV. Page 102. My dear Doctor, you're a poor scientist. It's easy to see why you make so many mistakes. And why you make so few friends, the Doctor replied. But the best bit is the Monitor's death. Page 103. Bidmead's original conception of John Fraser's exit from the story, which I imagine would have been impossible even for Peter Grimway to mount in studio in 1980. Page 103. Tegan had been unable to take her eyes off the monitor, and now her scream interrupted the master. He and the doctor turned to look upwards. Another shower of silt was pouring from the ceiling, caused by loose stonework tumbling from the roof, to where the monitor was flailing, as if trying to retain his balance. And then, as if in slow motion, they saw him slip. But the horror of it was that instead of falling heavily, the figure of the monitor began to float down through the ceiling towards them, like some huge flake of ash blown on the smoke of a fire. The body hit the floor with scarcely a sound, cracked open like a hollow shell, and powdered away to dust. I also love that the plot basically revolves around the Doctor pulling the Monitor's universe-saving CVE program from a 1980s PC hard drive. Too bad the Logopolitans didn't copy a 21st century version of the Pharaoh's project instead, which would have used a thumb drive. Chapter 11. One constant knock on seasons 19 and 20 is that Nyssa never seems to show the appropriate level of hatred for the Master. The line on page 115, she had never hated the Master as much as she did at that moment, is basically all we're going to get. Even though two more TV stories and novelizations are coming that have both Nyssa and the Master in them, although stay tuned for my Time Flight episode in a couple of weeks for one stray thought on that point, but chapter 11 for me is memorable, as it gives us a much more detailed explanation of the Watcher, including telling us that it's Adric who came up with the name. Page 113. Adric hesitated. At least, yes, he must have spoken to me. He had the distinct impression that it had been a conversation, but when he tried to remember what the Watcher's voice was like, he could only hear the Doctor speaking. It was impossible for Adric to know the Watcher's thoughts, and yet he felt sure their new companion was in some way part of the future. His mind hadn't changed because he knew. He had always known what was going to happen. Oh, and the Master's Tissue Compression Eliminator is called a Redimensioner in this chapter, the name that never caught on. And chapter 12 takes up parts of 13 pages. Well, two lines on the bottom of page 115, two and a half lines on the top of 127, and everything else in between longest chapter in the book. This explains in text what's only briefly suggested or implied on TV. The CVE stabilizes as soon as the program hits it, and the Doctor is safe to disconnect the cable, which will stop the Master's blackmail broadcast, but not affect the CVE. What's less clear is why the TARDIS chameleon circuit didn't repair itself after the Doctor input the monitor's corrected code in Part 3, but hey, he was a little busy after that. Page 125 explains, with more poetry than practicality, that the Watcher is the Doctor. Quote, A picture floated into his mind of a distant, vaguely formed figure, folded back from the time that was to come by the turmoil of the present. Even as he methodically continued the rocking movement of his hands, screwing out the thread millimeter by millimeter, he had a sense of those eyes watching him, his own eyes, from the future. And that thread, by the way, is the cable the Doctor has to unscrew while dangling in midair, knowing that he will fall and die. 
This makes his death a conscious heroic choice, which is a little different and improved from the eventual TV staging. The regeneration is pages 126 and 127. It is not as gorgeous as on TV, with Patty Kingsland's music under the montages of old enemies and companions, and the music featuring under the graphics-heavy regeneration, but Peter Davison is introduced as the Doctor here, and even gets some brief dialogue. The figure on the ground straightened its limbs and sat up slowly. A smoother, younger face was beaming, somewhat vacuously, up at them. Well, that's the end of that, said a voice they had not heard before but it's probably the beginning of something completely different. time on Doctor Who literature, it's the end, but the moment has been prepared for. Specifically, we have just finished the last Tom Baker TV story in novelization format, but it is not the last Tom Baker novelization of the original Target run. There are still two more Tom Baker books yet to come, and next week we dip back in time three seasons, two lighter, Happier Days, Robert Holmes, Louise Jameson, John Leeson as K-9, and a story about both the perils of colonialism and the evils of taxation. My guest next week is a returning guest whose voice you've heard here before. He is also an expert on the Sunmakers and has written the definitive monograph on the Sunmakers via the Black Archives. My friend Louis Baston is going to be joining us as we talk about Doctor Who and the Sunmakers. Thank you for joining me on another episode of the Doctor Who Literature Podcast. This podcast is produced by David Barsky, Jim Sangster, and yours truly. This week's episode was written and edited by me. Our logo was designed by Jim Sangster. Special thanks to my special guests, Jonathan Blum and Kate Orman. This podcast can be found on most of your podcast apps of choice. You can find all past episodes at podcasters.spotify.com slash pod slash show slash Doctor Who Lit. It really helps if you rate five stars and subscribe. You can find me on Twitter at Doctor Who Novels. That's D-R Who Novels. 
and on email at drwholiterature, that's drwholiterature at gmail.com. Please drop me a line with your comments, questions, and suggestions. Thank you for listening, and whatever you do, keep turning the pages. Doctor Who Podcast Network.